Hello, you have found the History of Southeast Asia podcast. I am your host, Charles Kimball. Episode 129, Sumba, the Forgotten Island. Greetings, dear listeners, for the 129th time, from the hills of bluegrass country in Kentucky. Well, I tried again to get an episode out in less than two months. What got in the way this time? Nature did, when I was more than halfway done with this episode. For the first time in my life, I was seriously ill. I guess there's something to be said that I made it to the age of 64 before something like that happened. I fell ill during the last week of August and thought it was just another cold. But it did not go away, and on the sixth day I was feeling so bad that I went to my doctor's office to be checked out. I never saw the doctor. The nurses checked my vital signs and then immediately called an ambulance. The way they are talking, they got me to the hospital just in time. It was a COVID infection that had caused my heart to race out of control. I stayed at the hospital for the next five days. I can't believe all the tests they did, all the blood samples they took. Fortunately, the test results were positive. No permanent damage. Then I convinced them that I had done all the recuperating possible with them. So they let me come home to finish the recovery here. Don't worry. I have a sock stretched over my microphone. It's an old podcaster's trick to make sure the letter P sounds normal in a recording. But now it will also make sure that none of you catch COVID from listening to this. Yes, I am practicing safe podcasting now. So what is happening in the rest of the world? As I record this, it is late summer, one of the dullest times of the year. Some people call these the dog days, or the summer doldrums. Many of us are on vacation, and the news isn't very exciting. I know that because the stories making headlines are ones you won't hear about the rest of the year. For example, one of the headlines I saw came from Memphis, Tennessee, where a crew of workers were painting a road, and they painted a white stripe over a dead raccoon on the pavement. That story should have only been reported in Memphis, but at this time of the year, it gets national attention. Of course, the news media would go out of business if they gave us a headline that said, Today, nothing happened. For those who are still at home, the kids are going back to school. And because the weather is hot and muggy outside, many of us, myself included, are looking forward to the beginning of fall. Speaking of Man Bites Dog stories, I've got a bit of news concerning a place we visited previously, Sulawesi. 
Indonesia has some marketplaces that are not recommended for the faint-hearted because dog and cat meat are sold there. There has been pressure from the outside world, from animal rights activists and world celebrities, to stop this practice. And in July 2023, they scored a victory. That is when Indonesian authorities announced the end of dog and cat slaughter at an animal market on the northern coast of the island of Sulawesi. The Tomahone Extreme Market will become the first such market in Indonesia to go dog and cat meat free, according to the anti-animal cruelty group Humane Society International. I found an article about the Tomahone Market, and I must admit, I couldn't read beyond the beginning of it because the article came with photos of butchered dogs. The photos were that horrible. For the past five episodes, we have done a mini-series about the islands of eastern Indonesia. Those places which were mostly overlooked in this podcast, while all the action was happening on Java, Sumatra, and Borneo. Episode 124 looked at Bali. Episode 125 visited Sulawesi. Episode 126 went to Lombok. Episode 127 was about Sumbawa. And with episode 128, we saw Komodo and Flores. Now today we are going to continue our journey across the Lesser Sunda Islands, and visit an island called Sumba. Compared with the islands in the previous episodes, Sumba is really off the beaten path. Here is how the website TravelAndLeisureAsia.com describes Sumba. Quote, It may only be an hour's hop from Bali, but Sumba Island feels like the last frontier in Indonesia. With white sand beaches, turquoise seas, rich culture, and some stylish new resorts in the mix, this raw destination is the antithesis to Southeast Asia's most frenetic beach towns. End quote. When it comes to tourist stops, Sumba has been neglected until recently. That's why I called it the Forgotten Island. Most foreigners have not heard of the place. The tourists who come here are mainly surfers and adventurers. So unless you can afford the most expensive hotel, more about that in a few minutes, you'd better be willing to rough it. The travel websites recommend Sumba as a quiet alternative to Bali, one of the best places to get away from it all, and the place to go when you need a vacation from the vacation you just took. I said getting away from it all because this isn't your typical tourist resort. The infrastructure considered essential for the tourism industry just isn't here. The roads are bumpy and long. The lodgings in most places are basic, 
The beaches are beautiful, but lack restrooms, cafes, and restaurants. All they have is sand, water, and mangrove trees. Still, if all you want is a quiet beach and a traditional tribal culture, Sumba is the place for you. Okay, this introduction has gone on long enough. If you are ready, let's go to Sumba. The first thing I need to tell you about Sumba is that Sumba and Sumbawa are not two names for the same place. I'm done talking about Sumbawa. Everything I wanted to say about that island is in episode 127. Sumba isn't even the local name. It's the name given to it by outsiders. The island's natives call it Humba or Huba. According to Wikipedia, Humba or Huba means no interfere, original, native, or indigenous. Likewise, the island's indigenous population calls itself Tau Humba or Tau Huba, meaning native people or original people. However, these names did not work so well for foreigners especially people from Java, who started coming here around the 12th century. To the Javanese, the native names did not make sense to them. For them, the name Humba meant to wash or to cleanse. Therefore, they replaced the H in Humba with an S, creating the name Sumba that we use. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when the Dutch were in charge, they had another name for Sumba, Sandalwood Island. Sumba is 174 kilometers, or 109 miles, south of Flores, rather than east of that island. There are at least two flights daily, from Denpansar on Bali. But Sumba has two airports, so make sure you fly to the right one. If you go to the wrong airport, you will have a long drive across the island to reach your destination. There is also a ferry that travels between Eastern Flores and Sumba on Tuesdays and Fridays. If you go to Sumba this way, Buy a first-class ticket. It only costs $3 in U.S. money, and you will appreciate being put in an area on the ferry with less noise and smoke. Sumba occupies an area of 11,005 square kilometers. That's 4,249 square miles, 
if you aren't metric. This means it is about the same size as Jamaica and twice the size of Bali, but it only has one-sixth of Bali's population. The most recent date I could find population figures for was 2021. Then Sumba had an estimated population of 788,190. Waingapu is the largest town on the island, with 35,000 residents. The landscape of Sumba is dominated by low-lying limestone hills. Mountains get as high as 4,000 feet above sea level. That's a bit more than 1,200 meters if you're metric. But unlike the other islands this podcast has visited, there are no volcanoes. Some geologists have even suggested that Sumba may once have been a part of northern Australia, and it was broken off the continent by plate tectonics. The island has a rich diversity of flora and fauna, and is especially famous for its bird life. There are more than 200 species of birds, including several species that are only found here. The natural habitat of Sumba is, however, threatened due to clearance of forests for human activities. Waterfalls, beaches, coves, and bird life are some of the tourist attractions of Sumba. Because of Sumba's isolation, much of the traditional culture has survived to this day. As a result, when you get away from the modern towns and hotels, you can visit a handful of traditional villages. In the center of each village is a cluster of megalithic tombs, with several individuals buried in each. The oldest tombs are built with stones while newer ones are built with concrete. Surrounding the tombs are the houses, which have extraordinarily tall peaked roofs. The peaked roofs are there because each house is supposed to have three levels. The bottom level is for the animals, and the middle level is the main floor, where the families conduct most of their activities. The top level Immediately under the peaked roofs is where ancestral spirits are believed to stay. Often ancestral artifacts are stored in the top level. Building a new house, or simply replacing a roof, requires ceremonies and sacrifices. Because the houses are built with flammable materials, this happens more than is probably necessary. Most of the village dwellers earn a living by farming or fishing. 
Typically, there is only one clan living in a village, two at the most. For every clan, there is a clan house in the middle of the village, named the Ruma Adat. These are houses where the clan's oldest ancestral spirits dwell, and cult objects of the clan are kept here. They are built with a different design from the houses of living people. This is the village's equivalent of a temple, church, or mosque. Outsiders may only enter with the permission of the clan. Villagers believe that while they will eventually leave this world, their spirits will never leave the village. Elaborate ceremonies are commonplace, especially for three of the most important events in life, birth, marriage, and death. Often animal sacrifices take place at the ceremonies. The animals used for the sacrifices are chickens, pigs, cattle, and water buffalo. So you'll need a strong stomach if you plan on attending these ceremonies. Animals also play a part in weddings, though here they are kept alive. When a man wants to propose, to a Sumba woman, his family must give her family gifts, usually in the form of water buffalo, cows, pigs, sandalwood, or horses. The number of animals required for marriage is determined by the status of the bride's family. For example, if the woman comes from a noble family, the price to marry her is 40 horses along with dozens of other livestock. As with the Tarajas in episode 125, a funeral is a big deal, so much so that it may be delayed for a long time in order for the family of the deceased to save up the money they need. One king had to wait 17 years after his death for his funeral until the villagers could afford it. I already mentioned that Sumba has a shortage of hotels, and the roads are not very good. In addition, Sumba is one of the poorest islands in the country, with many of the inhabitants lacking clean water, proper housing, and education. You will want to bring a mosquito net if you don't stay in a hotel, because you can catch malaria and dengue fever here. Stray animals run around loose, and they are in poor condition. Visitors will find their trip to Sumba heartbreaking. Virtually no one speaks languages from the outside world like English. To get around on Sumba, Without a guide, you will at least have to know Indonesia's official language, Bahasa Indonesia. As recently as 1998, a conflict broke out in the town of Waikabubak, where those fighting hacked each other to death with swords. This isn't a theme park like Walt Disney World. 
Although I said that Sumba is off the beaten path, it may not be that way for much longer. The island first attracted the attention of the travel industry in 1988, when a surfing couple, Claude and Petra Graves, came here in search of the perfect wave. They settled on Nihiwatu Beach. Nihiwatu means mortar stone because it is a beach with an isolated rock formation shaped by the tide. Unlike most tourists, they did not stay here for a few days and then leave, but founded the island's primary hotel, which they called the Nihiwatu Resort. By 2012, Claude was ready to expand the resort, and an American real estate investor, Christopher Birch, joined him to help with that. Birch brought in a friend from New York, the South African-born hotelier, James McBride, who was president of YTL Hotels in Singapore at the time. Later in that year, Birch and McBride acquired the hotel, renamed it Nihisumba, and they are the current owners. Since then, the Nihisumba has been ranked as one of the world's five best eco-hotels and was awarded the world's best hotel of 2016 and 2017 by Travel and Leisure magazine for its native ambiance and authentic local experience. Despite its expensive rates, the resort is fully booked most of the time. Rates start at $295 per night for adults and $145 a night for children 6 to 11 years old. The private villas range from $1,075 to $20,675 per night, depending on how many bedrooms they have and whether or not you book them during the busy season. More hotels are being built at this time. There are also huts along the beaches that can be rented. Fortunately, the developers have two goals. They don't want to add to the damage the local environment has already suffered, and they want to minimize disturbing the traditional culture. Though Sumba isn't too large of an island, the eastern and western halves of it are quite different, thanks to most of the rain falling on the western half. Consequently, two-thirds of the island's population lives on the west side, and the farmers grow rice, because this is Southeast Asia, after all. On the relatively dry east side, corn, called maize if you're not American, coffee, tobacco, fruits, coconuts and vegetables are grown, and copra is exported. The natives also earn much of their income by raising horses, water buffalo, and cattle, and they export these animals to other parts of Indonesia. Finally, 
I should say a few words about Sumba's textile industry. You have probably heard of batik, the technique used on Java for dyeing cloth with wax. Sumba's equivalent of batik is called ikat. Like batik and American tie-dyeing, ikat is a resist-dyeing technique. Here the artisan will tie and wrap individual yarns to prevent dyeing them all at the same time. What makes ikat different is that the yarns are dyed before they are woven into the cloth, making for a very complicated but beautiful process. Therefore, it takes a lot of skill to become an ikat artisan. Similar dyeing techniques have been developed in other parts of Southeast Asia, India, Iran, Uzbekistan, Madagascar, and South America. But apparently Indonesian ikat is the most famous these days. Of course, the tourists will take some ikat with them when they leave, as souvenirs. And some of it is exported to Bali, to be sold in the rest of Indonesia. But the people of Sumba keep their best weavings at home, for weddings and funerals. At funerals, for example, the deceased will be buried wearing ikat clothing. As on Flores and Sumbawa, the native population is a mixture of Malays from the islands to the west and Melanesians from the islands to the east. Most of them speak languages that are Austronesian in origin, meaning the languages are related to other Indonesian languages. However, Islam is not the predominant religion on Sumba, the way it is in most of Indonesia. In the previous episode, we saw that the people on the island of Flores are largely Catholic, but even Catholicism is not the main religion on Sumba. While there are some Muslims, Catholics, and Protestants, mainly living on the island's coast, the largest share of the population, about 30%, follow the traditional religion, which is called Marapu. This combines animism, the belief that there are spirits everywhere in the world, with ancestor worship and some Hindu beliefs. When it comes to freedom of religion, the Indonesian government recognizes six religions, Islam, Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. And the government requires every citizen of the country to embrace one of those religions. Whichever religion they declare is mentioned in documents that have personal data, such as passports and identification cards. In the past, those that didn't declare themselves as followers of one of the six religions could be denied a marriage license or land titles. Thus, in order to practice Marapu legally, its followers will declare themselves Muslim, 
Protestant or Catholic. Though Marapu has some practices that those religions do not call for, especially animal sacrifices and the placing of images on altars. While it is fairly easy to plan for trips to the most important tombs and villages, if you want to attend a traditional ceremony or ritual, they are never planned more than a few days in advance, and you will only hear about them from your guide or hotel. The most popular of these events is Pasola, a pre-harvest fertility ritual that the villages hold in February and March. This ritual features two groups of riders on horses, throwing spears at each other. A reminder that the Sumba people are still warriors. Nowadays, the spears have blunt wooden points so that nobody gets killed in the mock battle. Even so, witnesses to Pasola have said it gets very messy. They believe that like the former practice of headhunting, wounds from Pasola are good for the villages. The more blood is spilled on the ground, the better the harvest will be. Okay, you have been warned. It won't take long to cover Sumba's history, since we have no written records before the Europeans arrived, just over 500 years ago. For the pre-European era, the people of Sumba tell oral traditions, legends passed down from generation to generation. Oral history will tell how a clan got started and otherwise is reliable for the past four or five generations. What we know for sure is that people have lived here for a long time, at least 5,000 years. The oldest artifacts found were the skeleton of an exceptionally large man and a large clay jug. Both of these items date to some time before 1500 B.C., and they can now be seen in Jakarta. The original inhabitants of Sumba also left megalithic structures, monuments made out of enormous stones. Like the people of ancient Europe, they raised dolmen tombs, upright stones, some of them carved, and stone enclosures. They also leveled terraces. Today in the tribal villages, you can see similar structures. Megalithic tombs currently in use, table-like spirit stones, where offerings are made to the dead, and skull trees, called andung, where headhunters used to hang their trophies. 
The practice of headhunting was only stopped by the Dutch authorities in the 1920s. I mentioned already that the people of Java started coming here in the 12th century. More Javanese may have been sent by the kingdom of Singosari in the 13th century. And like the rest of Indonesia, Sumba was part of the Majapahit Empire in the late 14th century. Horses were either introduced to Sumba at this time or soon after 1400. Then after Majapahit collapsed, Sumba came under the rule of Bima on Sumbawa and later was ruled by Goa on Sulawesi. If you listen to previous episodes of the podcast, you may remember Singosari and Majapahit from episode 6, Bima from episode 127, and Goa from episode 125. All of these off-island rulers, however, could not make too many changes to the daily life on Sumba. Even the Dutch impact was limited until the 20th century. One Dutch official, for example, commented in 1911 that before the 20th century, money was not used on Sumba. Everything was traded by bartering. For the islanders, life was more influenced by internal wars between clans and small kingdoms than it was by whichever foreigners were in charge. These petty wars were mostly fought over land and trading rights. Warriors brought back the heads of killed enemies to their villages and speared them up on so-called skull trees in the middle of the village. They believed that the heads would bring a good harvest and wealth for the village. Sometimes they also kidnapped people from other villages and enslaved them, or sold them as slaves to neighboring islands. Because of these wars and raids, villages were built on hills or mountains and surrounded by stone walls for protection. Still, however, no village could grow or produce everything it needed, so some trade took place between them. The communities on nearby islands would also trade with Sumba, but they regarded it as a very violent island. Beyond Indonesia, the Chinese accepted as much sandalwood as merchants could bring to them, and we have Chinese records of this trade going as far back as 357 A.D. Usually the sandalwood came from either Sumba or another Indonesian island, Timor. The first Europeans to visit Sumba came from Portugal, and they arrived in 1522. Then as the 17th century began, the Netherlands founded the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, to take away Portugal's trade in Southeast Asia. We first hear of a Dutch ship making landfall on Sumba in 1636, when a schooner from the Dutch East India Company 
the Maria, was shipwrecked here. Initially, the company showed no interest in the island. Because it did not have any resources the company wanted. A report from 1650 noted that Sumba was under the control of Makassar on Sulawesi and that its slaves were too expensive. The Dutch also avoided Sumba because it had no central authority. If they invaded or made a treaty with the natives, they would impose their will on just one of the island's small kingdoms. Then in the 18th century, the Dutch discovered that sandalwood from the island's forests was a popular commodity, and people from places as far away as China and India would pay for it. So the Dutch entered the sandalwood trade. In 1756, the company signed a treaty with some of Sumba's leaders. After that, a considerable number of sandalwood trees were cut down and the sandalwood was exported. That is why present-day Sumba is not covered by forests and instead has vast arid grasslands or savannas. And because slavery was legal in those days, it would be a few more years before the abolitionist movement got started in England. The Dutch East India Company got involved in the slave trade, too. In 1866, the Dutch government formally annexed Sumba, adding it to its growing colony in the region, the Dutch East Indies. This was also the date when the first Christian missionaries arrived. Because the Netherlands is a Protestant country, most of the missionaries and their converts were Dutch Calvinists. But Jesuits came here as well, establishing a Catholic body in the population. Then in 1906, Dutch troops invaded Sumba. Not because the natives resisted Dutch authority, but because clan wars disturbed the colonial trade. I suspect the military intervention was an afterthought on the part of the Dutch, because their troops were also active on other Indonesian islands at this date. Remember the war on Bali. In 1913, the Netherlands set up a loose civil administration on Sumba. However, as you would probably guess if you have been paying attention, this changed the social structures of Sumba only very slowly. Actions by the Dutch to gain more power and influence often ended in bloody conflicts. The last part of Sumba's history will only take a minute to mention, since not much has happened here since 1940 aside from the coming of the hotel builders. My sources did not say anything about World War II, so it is safe to assume that the Japanese took over in early 1942 and held Sumba for the rest of the war, though no battles were fought here. After the war, when the Dutch came under foreign pressure to grant independence to the Dutch East Indies, 
They tried to enroll all the islands east of Java and Borneo into a separate state called Negara Indonesia Timor, the state of eastern Indonesia. The Dutch plan turned out to be unworkable, and in August 1950, the eastern islands, including Sumba, were annexed by Sukarno's Java-based government, creating Indonesia as we have known it ever since. And that's the way it is, as Walter Cronkite used to say. Okay, that takes care of Sumba. I don't want to delay this episode any longer, so I will get her done, as Larry the Cable Guy would say, and perform the final tasks needed to get it to you. Although the end has come in sight for our tour of eastern Indonesia, there are a few more islands between Sumba and New Guinea. So join me next time to see which islands we visit next. And then after that, we still have to visit the fabled Spice Islands, the Moluccas. In the podcasts I have been listening to, I have noticed the number of advertisements is increasing. Somehow, the websites hosting those podcasts know I am in Kentucky. And with the podcasts I download or stream, they will give me ads aimed at the Kentucky market. For example, currently most of those podcasts come with an ad announcing that sports betting is about to become legal in Kentucky. Since I don't gamble, and I'm not a sports fan, this ad isn't useful to me. Still, I may hear it multiple times in one podcast episode, and that gets annoying. If you feel the same way, you probably appreciate that I put no ads in this podcast. If you are hearing any, they are not from me. However, I still need to keep the lights on here, figuratively speaking. Remember what I said at the beginning of this episode? About the dog days of summer? For podcasters, that means the number of donations can decrease in late summer. And that happened here. No one-time donations have come in since the previous episode was recorded. Although late summer may become fall by the time you hear this, any donation you can afford to make will still be greatly appreciated on this end. One-time donations are made through PayPal, or you can sign up to make a small monthly donation through Patreon. I have included links to both on the Blueberry.com page that hosts this episode. And if you can't afford to make a donation at this time, you can still help by spreading the word about this show 
to family, friends, and even people you have just met who may be interested. Heck, I am telling folks about the show all the time. Okay, I've said enough. So thank you for listening, and come back when the monsoon winds are blowing right.